The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So in case you haven't heard, uh, we finished up a series of talks that lasted over a year on the 10 paramis a while back, a couple weeks ago. And we're going to be looking more formally over the next few months at our formal meditation, formal sitting meditation practice. And for people who want more background, you can get a hold of this book. I'm not sure you're going to be able to get a paper copy of it. It's a book written by a monk, a Buddhist monk, a Western monk. But uh, they generally don't sell their books through normal publishers. They just put them online for free. So you can definitely get an electronic copy. And I have these little slips of paper out on the table in the lobby, so you can just take one. That will give you the website where you can download a PDF or put something on your electronic reader if you want to follow along. Don't feel like you have to get a hold of the book. (laughs) And that address, that website rather, is for a monastery in California. And when they have paper copies, they're happy to mail them out to people. So you're welcome to send an email to the monastery and just to ask. But normally they say at the website whether they have paper copies, and they didn't for this book. So I'm assuming they're out of the paper copies. And it's Ajahn Sushito's book, Meditation, A Way of Awakening. It's quite good. And so these last two weeks I've been looking at it's not even the first chapter. It's just called Preliminaries, his forward, really, in the book. And uh, I think it's especially relevant to think of our motivation for the practice. Last week I talked about why meditate. And uh, to think about it, especially in terms of some of the chaos and the divisiveness and the messiness that maybe for some people real pain that has arisen over the last couple of weeks with the news of the killings here in Minnesota and Louisiana and then the shootings of police officers. And then it's as bad as that violence is, what it, I hope, does for all of us is it uh, sort of brings a window for the systemic problems that exist, that we live in a world that is profoundly imperfect. And that world, it's not somebody else's fault, right? I mean, this is the important thing as Buddhist practitioners to realize that the messiness, like the messiness of racial injustice or other kinds of injustice, is an expression of what? Well, it can only be an expression of our own mind. The systemic things that exist in institutions, like maybe the criminal justice system, That's an expression of our own ignorance, our own fear, our own greed, our own... That where else would it come from? So if we're going to wake up, we need a, a way of being, a way of relating that helps us at these times when the messiness of our interpersonal relationships, the messiness of our culture, the messiness of our own body... We, some of you know I've been talking off and on over the last few weeks. We have a new cat at home, and uh, it was starving out in the countryside next to Common Ground's retreat property that some of you have been at and uh, getting beat up by the local farm cats. So we brought it home, and for the last two months now, the puncture wounds it got from its fights with the other farm cats have been an abscess and just sort of 
weeping wounds that just won't heal. We're starting the second round of antibiotics today for the cat. And it's so everything is messy. Having pets, shopping for food is messy. When we really look at the roots of everything, you know, like the choices we make about the clothes we buy, the food we eat, the pets we have, where we live. And the important thing is, you know, the, you have often heard the practice is this middle way. So one way to lose the middle way is to be unaware of the karma, the consequences of all the choices we're making all day long. So being in denial, thinking it's somebody else's fault, that's one way to lose the clarity, the balance. The other is to naively and aversively get controlling, like I'm going to fix this world, I'm going to make it right, I'm going to blame somebody. You know, all of these basic expressions of greed and aversion. So on one side, we could say our expressions of greed and aversion, fear, hatred, blaming, judging. And on the other side is all the different habits of disconnecting, being in denial, imagining, you know, this sort of superficial imagining that it's the way it's supposed to be. Like in Buddhism, people misunderstand Buddhism. They think, well, this is the way it's supposed to be. As opposed to like what I said in the guide, it's it, this is the way that it is. It doesn't mean it's supposed to be this way, you know, that people are suffering unnecessarily or people are being treated unjustly. It is this way, but that doesn't mean we, our hearts should be complacent or that we shouldn't be interested. It just means that the starting point is an honest understanding that, in fact, it is this way. The world we live in is this way. The life I'm living is this way, right now, in this moment. You see how that honest acknowledgement is a really powerful step to responding in a more honest, more fearless, more useful, hopefully, way. So I wanted to begin tonight by just acknowledging that a lot of this is probably in the air for us. And, uh, of course, any useful spiritual practice is going to address this kind of messiness, this divisiveness, or whatever it is that we're feeling, guilt or denial or rage or what's the big deal? You know, so whatever it is that people are feeling, ideally, we'd want a spiritual practice that addresses exactly how it is for each of us, right? So this is what Ajahn Sushito lay, lays out right at the beginning of the book in these sec- this section called Preliminaries that is basically addressing the question, why meditate? We have to understand, I'm sure you've noticed, like in terms of these events and just whatever is alive for you in your life about this or about anything, you know, financial insecurity or you're having a baby or you've got a cat that has a wound or whatever it might be, to realize that when anything happens, even something relatively ordinary like 
a cashier at the grocery store not giving you the attention you want from that person. You know, everything is triggering because it's not so much just what that person does or doesn't do, but it triggers this whole, who knows, this storehouse of tendencies. It's like even sitting in front of a room of people or being somebody sitting in a room with a bunch of other people that's like this now. Everybody, of course, it's going to be different for everybody, but it's triggering, it's like a response, all of the latent tendencies for my mind when I'm experiencing a moment like this, all those latent tendencies come to the surface. So when we hear the news about injustice, or we hear the news about this, or we have an interaction with a person that's like that, or we see somebody who looks like this, or every event in our life, not only is what it is, but it's also triggering, it's also bringing to the surface all of the reverberations that somehow sympathetically feel, look, vibrate like this current event, this current sense contact, this current sense experience. Have you ever noticed that Sometimes our reaction to something going on in our life is so much bigger than the moment seems to demand. Why is that? Because our response isn't just about the moment. The moment is triggering often, sometimes at least, a flood of reactivity, of strong feeling because it looks, it feels like, it vibrates like things that have happened in the past that have left an impression in the mind, like trauma. You know, people who have been abused, and then when something happens that somehow reminds them, then any of that unfinished business comes to the surface. And then we tend to overreact, or not maybe overreact, but we react in a way that's not just about what's showing up in the moment, but is about all that has showed up in the past. And the reason I bring this up is it really helps us have a lot more patience and space and forgiveness for each other. Because, you know, when, when somebody's in the traffic having road rage because we, you know, were driving at the speed limit and they wanted to go faster and you, you kind of catch a glance in your rearview mirror, and what you see is like a demonic hate. <laughs> and it's just so easy to assume that, no, no, that person's crazy, or that person's just off. But from the point of view of this little experience of you driving at 55 miles an hour and that person wanting to go 70 or whatever, you might think that, no, no, that person's just, a demon, and somebody better put them out of their misery. But from the point of view of everything that's ever happened to that person, that rage, that imbalance that might be there in their mind, or whatever you want to call what's going on, may be exactly the natural, the unavoidable expression. doesn't mean it's skillful. It just means that given everything at play can't be other than what it is. 
We really want to learn, like as we study bigger systems like our country or the world or smaller systems like our family or work scene, the community at work or the community in the neighborhood we live or the community at organizations that we're part of or even within our own mind, like the conversations, the dialogue, the inner commentary that just exists within our own heart and mind. When we observe these different systems, we want to understand them, and we can't understand them if we just interpret them on the surface like what's happening is just because what's on the surface. We have to realize, no, what's happening is not just about what's on the surface, but it's all that's below the surface. It's all the systemic conditioning, the implicit biases, the trauma, Because if we really want to respond appropriately in the moment, we have to understand how big it is, how complex it is. Where does that leave us? Well, hopefully with a lot of humility. That's a good start, to have a lot of humility about what to do, how to respond. Because when we have a lot of humility, we're willing to listen, we're willing to feel, what's getting triggered in ourselves, to be at least honest. We may not be able to sense what is percolating in everybody's heart. They may themselves be unaware. But we can, with practice, we can at least have a more honest sense of what's getting triggered in our own mind and heart based on the circumstances, based on what we see, what we're experiencing, And this really goes to the heart of practice because this is very difficult work. So we develop our competence by doing this work, not just in daily life, which we want to do it in, but to create time, like our formal sitting meditation time, where the conditions are relatively simple. So that this practice of not just seeing what's on the surface, but seeing into the depth. So in every moment of being mindfully aware, there's sort of the surface thing like, oh, I'm breathing in or I'm breathing out. But just the turning the attention to your breath means that any respiratory problem you ever had as a kid, like let's say you had asthma as a kid, or maybe your mean older neighbor (laughs) bully, choked you when you're a kid for a few seconds and you panicked, right? All of that trauma is there when we're just being aware of the breath coming in, breath going out. You know, whatever relationship we have to the breath, conscious, unconscious, it's all informing the, you know, the intention we have in meditation practice is, honey, let's open to the breath. Breathing in is like this. Breathing out is like this. So even something that for most people is relatively neutral, the process of breathing, is to some degree charged for everybody. And for some people, some percentage of people, it's deeply charged. It's not actually a useful meditation object for some people that have had breathing problems that, or for whatever reason, there's some baggage with the breath. And they may maybe want to use a different anchor for their meditation practice. 
Or maybe silence is triggering for you. Or being in a room full of people is triggering for you. Or sitting still is triggering for you. Everything is triggering for everybody to some degree. Something's going to be greater trigger, something's less. But it's not about, you know, we do our best in terms of finding an appropriate time to sit, an appropriate way to sit, an appropriate meditative strategy or meditation technique to use. But it doesn't mean stuff isn't going to get triggered. It just means we're minimizing it so we can learn in the relatively simple environment of our formal sit, we can learn how to be intimate. Intimate in a world, in an experience, that's charged, right? That's what we learn when we live with awareness, is we learn how everything is charged. And by charged, I mean it's charged with the strong tendency to want to be distracted, want to be in denial. It's charged with the tendency to want to be controlling, want to be judging, wanting to be fixing, wanting to make be making something happen, trying to get somewhere, trying to get rid of something. Isn't, aren't most of the moments of our life, when we actually look in an honest way, don't we usually find some charge? It really stands out. When you have a moment in your life where you tune in, you open up, you're mindfully aware, it's almost a mystical experience an enlightening experience when you're aware and you see and feel no charge. Like that perfect balance. The mind is crystal clear, bright, but it has no agenda. It has no charge except to know it's like this. How often does that happen? Not very often. I mean, with practice, we have more of those moments or less reactivity, less charge, or maybe more accurately, the mind is a little more and more less confused by the charges that get triggered. Oh, that's just irritation. That's okay, it's just irritation. That's just judgment. Okay, it's just judgment. That's just wanting to get the heck out of here. Okay, that's just that feeling of wanting to get out of here. Wanting this to be over. Okay. I can live with that feeling of wanting this to be over, wanting this to last. Okay, that's just that feeling, wanting this to last, right? Isn't that actually, like those of you who practice for a while, isn't that actually one of the positive consequences of having been devoted to your practice is not so much that you're less charged in the different places in your life, but you're not confused by the different charges as they come and go. And because we're not confused or less confused, we're not reinforcing them, we're not feeding them. So when something gets triggered and I have a charge, I'm aversive, why well, I have this choice really, I can feed the aversion by identifying with it. Yeah, why this shouldn't be happening. That actually strengthens the charge, the tendency to have that aversive charge. Or I can realize that's just aversion. Just feeling that charge of not liking, wanting this to be over thinking this is somebody's fault. And part of this humility is that when we look at each other, groups of people, individuals, like I said earlier, we don't really know what's getting triggered in them because we don't know the history. 
And I think this is really important. I know for myself as a white person, a relatively privileged person in a number of ways, you know, it's important for me to remember, like even, even something with my wife, my spouse, who's also had a pretty privileged life, but just the, you know, just growing up in a world that's, you know, with patriarchy, it's like it's my tendency is to be unaware of that imbalance in our culture, right? To not see it. It's the same thing with the tendency, you know, for a lot of, well, just speaking for myself as a white person, like, to, I have to try, I have to work hard to be sensitive to uh, racial injustice because the tendency, the way my mind is conditioned is, you know, to not see it. Now, other people, the way the, the charge works for them is like when somebody's traumatized, you know, like if you've had even something really simplistic, if you've had uh, a really sore arm for a long time and it's taken six months to heal and now it's pretty good and a friend comes up, hey, and, you know, grabs your arm or something like that, your tendency is to kind of overreact because you have this six-month history of having a really sore arm. So it's really hard for us to sense, like, well, what's that like for people who come out of you know, being in poverty or experiencing racial injustice or being a woman in a patriarchal culture or any other number of ways that people have been oppressed. Now, the way we get more sensitive to this and learn better how to be in community, all of the little and big communities we're part of, is by studying our own mind, by understanding our own um, sort of basement of tendencies and reactivities that aren't really about this moment. In Buddhist practice, we actually call this dharma pain. It's like you're sitting, everything's going pretty well in your life, and you sit you know, in your meditation and like a deep sadness comes up or a lot of grief comes up or a lot of restlessness or a lot of irritation. And the habit of my mind, and our minds, I think, I think I can speak for all of us, is to immediately assume that there's something happening in the present moment that is the cause for my sadness, is the cause for my restlessness, or whatever the strong feeling is, right? Lust. That it's something happening. So we, in a sense, we look at the surface of our life to make the feeling we're feeling make sense. Oh, I'm angry because she didn't do this for me. But when we're practicing more and more, we realize, no, this strong anger, let's say, isn't about what's going on on the surface of my life. It's about some old, unresolved, like historic pain that for whatever reason, it's really our good fortune that it's come to the surface because you can't heal something that's unconscious, right? You can't. It's got to come into the space of awareness 
And then as long then the practice is to not be confused by whatever shows up. Maybe it's numbness that's showing up, maybe it's anger that's showing up, maybe it's jealousy, maybe it's you know, it could be any number of strong things. But with wisdom we see it's not about what's happening, so it's Dharma pain, meaning it's my teacher. What is it teaching me? Honey, don't be confused by the intensity of this feeling. Don't be confused by what the feeling is. Because whatever it is, it's arising lawfully, naturally. It needs to come to the surface. The job of the mind is basically like, if there's anything that needs to be done, do it. If, there's, if this feeling that I'm feeling has nothing to do with what's going on, so there's nothing that needs to be done, then we, in a sense, we're ventilating it. We're allowing it to be. Okay, there's a lot of grief. There's a lot of rage. Because otherwise what we always do is we perpetuate our trauma, our suffering, our confusion, because we act it out in the world. We assume that the enormity of what I'm feeling deserves a response out in the world. But if we can make peace with, with, with what's gotten triggered, with what we're feeling, then when we do respond to the world, it won't be skewed by the enormity of what we're feeling. And so then what does our activity look like in the world? When it's not driven by the past, then our response is driven by compassion, by love, by wanting to make the world a better place not acting out our trauma or our pain or, you know, as a white person, ignorance or denial or guilt or wanting it to be fixed so I don't feel guilty or something like that, you know, in terms of issues around racial injustice. So in terms of sitting practice, like how does this relate to sitting practice? Like I mentioned earlier, this is where we learn the ropes. We sit down... Right? Because we care. That's why we sit down. We sit down because we care about this life. And to the degree we really understand that we care about this life, it's hard for us not to care about other lives. Because we understand that in the same way that there's a sensitive being here, there are sensitive beings there. In the same way that this sensitive being is getting pushed around by my own conditioning, my own you know, unseen pain, my own fear of vulnerability, fear of insecurity. Every other sensitive being is getting pushed around by the same stuff. And because to the degree we're unaware of being pushed around, we keep bumping into each other and causing more pain and suffering, stepping on each other's toes, oppressing each other, harming each other. So we sit down because we care, and we sense that the one thing we can do is we can become clearer, more honest about what's happening. That, that we have this basic value. You can say this when your friends ask you, why do you meditate? You can say, I don't know much, but I, I've been gathering some data. And the one thing that seems true is being clear, being honest about my direct experience is useful in life. Right? So... I put aside some time every day to practice being more clear, 
more honest. And the way I do that is I stabilize awareness. We call this mindful awareness. Mindful awareness is this stability of mind, samadhi, that can see things as they are, not distorted by our concepts about things, not distorted by the habit of being superficial or being reactive, wanting things to look the way we think they should look based on our expectations. No, mindful awareness is a stability, and as I mentioned before, to some degree at least, free of expectation, free of an agenda, like, or the agenda is just wanting to see it as it is, wanting to connect, wanting to open to things as they are. And that's what we practice. And so much of what we're opening to are these underlying forces of greed, anger, delusion on the surface and then the storehouse below. So not just the thing right now that's irritating my mind like knee pain, but the irritation I have around my knee pain in a sense is reminding the mind of everything I've ever been irritated about. Right, So all of those ancient moments of being irritated somehow vibrate, have the same frequency vibration as the irritation I have with my knee pain. And so that all comes to the surface to some degree just in being present with knee pain. Or if I'm having a pleasant feeling, all the greed I've ever had, all the wanting things to be nice, wanting that nice thing to last, that all gets triggered when we're sitting. When things are boring, nothing seems to be happening, we just want to fantasize, do something that's more interesting than being with the body, being with the breath, that's going to trigger all the other moments we were bored and wanted to disconnect, didn't think that being present was relevant or useful. right? All the classes we sat in where the teacher was boring or you know, listening to some adult tell us or a friend who goes on and on, you know, all those times we disconnected, that stuff gets triggered when we're sitting and nothing seems to be happening. And the mind concludes, well, I don't really have to be here. Why should I have to be awake? Nothing's happening. You know, and it's like, it can be so easy to just get lost in thought. So we have to, we, we learn so much in the formal sitting. And what we're learning to do, instead of getting swept away by the enormity of greed and all the different, many, many expressions of greediness, wanting something, wanting something to last, you know, this sort of idealistic sense of utopia, perfection. Basically, anytime we, the mind dangles something shiny in front of itself, hey, what about this? You know, that's greed. And that happens all the time. Or aversion, you know, anything, anytime we scare ourselves. Even this, like I mentioned with knee pain, we can scare ourselves over and over again. Oh, knee pain. Even before it's that bad, you know, oh, I know it's not bad now, but it's going to be bad, right? Oh, my God. Even we can get frightened by time. It's like, oh, God, only four minutes. I told myself I was going to sit for 20. And it's like we traumatize ourselves. We frighten ourselves, like, and there's 60 seconds in every minute. So that means in five minutes, five times 60 is 300 seconds. One, two, that's God. Oh, that's just too much. <laughs> and it, it can, we can basically frighten ourselves by anything, whatever it might be. 
So, but we keep seeing it. And then what's our escape? Well, if greed and aversion and all the forms of delusion, distractedness, um, denial, all the different ways we disconnect from the dynamic of the present moment, what's the alternative? Well, the simple answer is love, right? This sort of all-embracing quality of the heart. You can call it samadhi, you can call it love, you can call it a kind of renunciation or the the great, uh, beautiful, joyful expression of or manifestation of renunciation. I mean, the word renunciation is a little scary for us, but actually it's an empowering joy to have this mind, to rest in a mind that lets go, rest in a mind that doesn't need anything, that's content. So this is what we're uncovering because we see over and over again that identifying with the fear and aversion, identifying with the greed, identifying with the delusion and denial and distraction, it's, it just torments us. It just ties the knots tighter, becomes oppressive. And the alternative is to abide, learn to abide in this place of balance, whether you want to call it love or compassion or the heart that lets go, the heart that's content, the generosity of the heart. These are the three intentions or motivations that we can trust. And you could say that so much of our practice, both sitting formal meditation and then informal daily life practice, is clarifying the difference between the roots of all suffering, greed, anger, and delusion, and the roots of all ease and skill and and sort of supporting the well-being of all beings, which is love or metta, loving kindness, compassion, and letting go, or renunciation, or generosity, contentedness. These are the roots of all happiness, the opposite of greed, anger, and delusion, the roots of all unhappiness. The opposite of greed is letting go. The opposite of aversion is love and compassion. You know, the opposite of delusion is not being swept away. And, and this is the thing about samadhi. These values, they lead to samadhi, this balance, where the mind isn't confused. So I thought it'd be good to leave a little bit more time tonight to hear from other people in the community. I'll just end with this passage from the Dhammapada. It's actually the very beginning of this uh, collection of verses from the Buddhist tradition and uh, really has to do with these two qualities or these two sets of qualities, wholesome and unwholesome. It's called dichotomies, this first chapter in the Dhammapada. All experience is preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind, speak or act with a corrupted mind, greed, anger, and delusion, and suffering follows as the wagon wheel follows the hoof of the ox. All experience is preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind, speak or act with a peaceful mind, right? Non-greed, non-delusion, non-anger, or this love and compassion and renunciation. Speak or act with a peaceful mind, and happiness follows like a never-departing shadow. 
He abused me, attacked me, defeated me, robbed me. For those carrying on like this, hatred does not end. She abused me, attacked me, defeated me, robbed me. For those not carrying on like this, hatred (coughs) ends. Hatred never ends through hatred. By non-hate alone does it end. This is the ancient truth. But because of this, you know, this basic eternal truth that hatred doesn't end by hatred, it doesn't mean we should judge or hate those people who are hating, which is what our tendency, it's so absurd, right? What should we do is we should express understanding. That's love and compassion. Of course you're angry. Of course you're needy. Of course you're deluded. I know that. I get angry. I get greedy. I get deluded. So I can be close to your acting out of your tendency because I've studied it every day when I sit and for the rest of the day when I'm not formally sitting. I study these three unwholesome intentions. I'm very familiar with the movement of greed, with the movement of anger, with the movement of delusion. And I understand when it's triggered and when it's expressing that it can't be other than what it is. It has roots, deep roots. Nobody's anger is a mistake. doesn't mean it's skillful. doesn't mean it's helping them. But it's not a mistake. It's not something to hate. It's something to understand and to relate to it with skill. So how do we relate to anger? Well, with wisdom and love. How do we relate to greed we see in the world? With wisdom and love. It doesn't mean we don't try to make the world a better place. It just means we don't try to make the world a better place with hate and with greed and with denial or delusion or disconnection. We make the world a better place with love and compassion and letting go. And if you don't think this is strong, like a lot of times people who haven't thought or uh, looked carefully might think that well, how the heck is love and compassion and letting go going to make the world a better place? Well, we see it. If you look, you'll see that people who are grounded in these wholesome qualities can change the world in a way that people who have a lot of intelligence, a lot of integrity, but are caught in anger, caught in divisiveness, turning the world into good and bad, actually, they may on the surface look like things are happening, but they may be sowing seeds that are going to make the situation worse in the end. This is a good reason to study history, to see how things that looked right on the surface end up. I mean, every single invasion, every single genocide had justifications. You know, All the injustices had justifications. It felt like the right thing to do. Like, like this, the crisis around immigration and like being afraid of people coming in, right? It seems legitimate. Oh yeah, we got to protect ourselves. It always feels like greed, anger, and delusion always seems to make sense. That's why we have to practice, right? It makes sense. Anger seems functional. Greed seems functional. When you are, let's say you're single and you're really attracted to somebody. It seems really functional to crave being with that person. But does the craving lead to a wholesome relationship? No, it leads to suffering. 
What leads, what leads to a wholesome relationship? Well, being fearless, you know, fearless to spend some time with the person so you can see if you should be together. But craving doesn't lead to a wholesome relationship. Anger doesn't lead to the world becoming a better place. Anger leads to anger. Greed leads to greed. Denial, distraction, and delusion leads to that. And love leads to love. Compassion leads to compassion. And letting go leads to letting go. And this is, it seems sort of like commonsensical, but that's not, unfortunately, how we live our lives. So let's hear from each other and learn from each other. Of course, any questions you have about what I said tonight, and then especially any comments, anything that you've been learning in your life that you'd like to share with the group. It's nice to say your name and remember to point the mic right at your mouth like this, but not up and down like this. And Tom, maybe turn the lights on a little brighter. So who'd like to begin? Yeah, Charlie. So I have a question. My name's Charlie. Um, I have a question related to what you were talking about, studying history. So I have this sort of thought experiment that sometimes runs through my mind when I'm thinking about karma, because I I really believe in it in the way that you were talking about. But then I think, well, what if I was, what if I was a young man in America during World War II and seeing what was going on with the Third Reich and, you know, not wanting to respond with more hate, but also possibly... Um, either volunteering to go fight against it or, I mean, being drafted, too. So what, or sort of more abstractly, if there's forces of hate that are so strong that require forceful responses, is it, is that still, you know, is it still better to, you know, just be only peace? Um, Or is there a way for peace to exist within violence that's defensive or I don't know I'm just kind of caught up with with that yeah and maybe we can as we think about your comment and question think about it not in an abstraction like what would we have done at the beginning of World War II but you know something that's actually happening in our own life Um, like you know I I have some friends some people in the community who were uh, on I-94 during the protests and got arrested a number of people in the community, common ground community. And, uh, you know, so just even that, you know, like engaging protests that are are somewhat divisive and, you know, at least the people on the freeway causing problems and uh, provoking police reaction. And so, like, do I do that or don't do I, do I not do that? And, uh, So the first thing I think that's important with all of these challenging situations is to really embrace a sense of humility. Like We're never going to know with certainty what the right thing to do or not do is. To really get comfortable with that. But just because we'll never have certainty, just because we're learning to relax with a sense of humility, doesn't mean that not doing is the right answer, right? So the humility doesn't, if we think humility promotes passivity, then we're misunderstanding it. Because just because there's a sense of humility, knowing that we won't know with perfect 
That's just allowing us to be more honest so that when we act, we're going to pay attention. So even though, like, I don't know what's going to happen if I sign up as a soldier in World War II, so I don't sign up or I do sign up, but I, just because I've made a choice doesn't mean I get to stop paying attention. So it's like we keep paying attention all along, all along. And it feels like, oh, God, I just want to make a choice and then not have to. But we don't, we don't really get that option as a human being. As a human being, to have, a, to have real integrity and to find real freedom, we have to embrace this clarity, this, this dynamic that's moment to moment to moment. Initially, it seems really oppressive to have to, to, have to bring a lot of integrity, a lot of clarity to each moment of our life. But it only initially seems that way because we think we, we see that kind of integrity and clarity and awareness as something I personally have to do. But you can check right now. Do you personally have to be aware? Do you personally have to make effort to be aware of what's going on right now? I mean, I'm, I know we can think, oh, I've, yeah, I've got to really pay attention or I'm going to miss this. But is that in fact the case, that there's somebody called you you know, Mark or whoever you are, back there, and as soon you got to really, it's you who are being clear. It's you who are digesting what's going on in the moment. Or can this clarity and this sort of comprehension of what's going on for you right now, can this just happen? Is it just happening naturally, unavoidably? So whenever the mind is not distracted, that clarity, that comprehension, and then a skillful response that comes out of that clarity and comprehension, that maybe that's the natural way. So, because we're all faced with these sort of, I mean, maybe not like, should I join the war or not, but there are all these moral choices that are happening, ethical choices that are happening all the time, every single moment. Why don't we want to show up? Like even in little simple things, how I treat the cat. You know, like it's, I'm walking from one part of the house to the next, and our cat, this new cat, we just uh, adopted from being out in the wilderness or in the countryside by itself. You know, it's always underfoot. And like, I have this sense of purpose as I walk from this, and I'm going to use the toilet, and you know. And it's like, it's so easy to be dismissive, like, what the heck are you doing? Get out of my, don't you realize I'm walking here, right? <laughs> but to realize, like, I had, th- that's a moral choice to be inconsiderate, to be a little aggressive or a little dismissive, right? And that's a moral choice in the sense that there are consequences for me being a little rough or a little dismissive or a little careless, like I might step on its toe or whatever. And I, it doesn't have to be that way. And to just sort of wake up, like, because a lot comes up, like, yeah, but I've got a life to live. You know, I am in a hurry. And so it's like, this is that imperfect, you know, we don't really know. Like, well, should I just go so slowly? There might be an ant on the floor that I might accidentally stand on. Do I have to, you know, sort of, especially when it's dusk or nighttime? We can get obsessive about not wanting to make a mistake. So how to 
stay relaxed, how to stay humble, how to stay interested. And I think this humility really helps, like not expecting to get it right. So then instead of like our choice dependent on being right, our choice is dependent on making the choice in this moment based on a wholesome motivation. I don't really know whether this choice is going to lead to harm or something good, but I, I do know that in this moment I'm choosing to do this from what feels like a wholesome motivation. I'm saying this, I'm joining this protest, I'm deciding to stay home because the motivation that I can detect, I trust. But I don't know if it's the right thing to do. But at least I trust the motivation. And then it turns out it it sort of ends up being a big mess. Well, we'll learn from that, okay? The, The motivation felt good, but now I know more. And... In the future, I'll make a different choice based on what I now know. Yeah, other thoughts that come to mind? Navigating life, what you've learned about these three wholesome, three unwholesome motivations, how to be a more engaged, skillful human being, what comes to mind? Nobody's been swept away by greed, anger, delusion, or nobody (laughs) has been able to, uh, with some humility, some patience, wait until a motivation of kindness or compassion or a sense of letting go, a sense of contentedness, and then moving into the moment, responding to the moment from that place, and what comes from that. What have you learned about these forces of mind? Yeah, please, all the way in the back, last row. Yeah, but real close. Uh, Look and make sure the light's on the stem. All right, now it's on. Okay, sorry. My name is Audrey. I don't know, it might be kind of a cheesy story, but my parents came to visit. I only see them uh, once a year. And we usually have a pretty confrontational relationship because I would like them to be a certain way and they would like me to be a, a certain way and it doesn't match. Uh, so we kept really arguing about this. Um, and for the first time, since I've only been here for a few months, but I guess for the first time I tried to use the whole non-attachment uh, concept and just try to be as understanding of them. And they tried, and they also did some progress on that and tried to be more understanding of me. And uh, we had a great time, and we hadn't had such a great time in uh, many years. So that was good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly, because we know the suffering of that kind of um, divisiveness between parent and child. So thanks so much for sharing. We have time maybe for one more question or comment. Other thoughts, learnings from your life you'd like to share with the community? Yeah, please, you want to pass the mic up? Hello, everyone. My name is Wako. Uh, my question is, how do you uh, not let the fear of others or the group fear that's um, prevalent nowadays not get to you? Uh, personally, I won't let uh, fear build up in myself, but then it's hard to dismiss other people's fear. Like everywhere you go, people talk about 
what's going on or the violence that's going on, but they talk about it in a way that in, uh, brings about fear. You know, they show their fear, and you, you can't really, um, uh, I can't really put my um, thinking into it or uh, share my idea about it because everybody's in fear or everybody's talking about it in a way of fear, and I don't see it in a way of fear myself. I want to spread love when it comes to it, but then I, I you know, instinctively want to get away because I don't want to be a part of the conversation, although it's something I'd like to talk about. Their fear is, I can feel it, you know, coming to me, so I just get away. How do I keep the fear away from me? Yeah, well, that's the question, isn't it? And I think a lot of it is um, we have to find a way of being intimate with their fear. So the short answer is, yeah, to see their fear and understand that it belongs, you know, that it's not a mistake, but it's not skillful. So you don't want to relate to it in a way that adds more fuel to it. But you don't want to judge them or make them bad because they're afraid or because somebody's angry. So that's the real uh, art. It's kind of an art, like how do you honestly acknowledge so one of the things we can do, I mean, you have to find language that makes sense in the situation, but to out loud with them acknowledge that they're really angry, that they're really afraid, you know, to, to kind of uh, make sure that they see that you get what they're feeling. Does it mean that you're confirming their perceptions? but that you're really getting what they're feeling. You know, so superficially we might say something, I really get what you're feeling. You know, I see, I see what you're talking about. I know that you're really hurting. I know that you're feeling something big. And then just in the way that we say that to somebody, we can manifest our own non-fear, like you said about not getting swept away by fear, so that quality of love, that quality of compassion, that naturally gets expressed in us acknowledging, ah, I can can really feel that you're upset. I really get it. I really get that this hurts or that you're angry or that you're, you know, you've had it or whatever that, you know, so you're kind of mirroring back, but you're doing it with compassion. Like you're practicing not being afraid of their suffering. Now, that's not easy, so sometimes you are going to have to back away you know, or limit the contact because the reality is for some people who are really triggering for us, we're not helping them being around them because we're just going to get triggered and we're going to become part of this momentum of people being triggered. And so sometimes we need to keep our distance, and then when we have our balance, then we can come back into relationship because we know how to be with their pain be with the confusion or whatever they're showing up with, but not being confused by it. But not having to judge them, not having to push them away or tell them that they're wrong. And this is how we can contribute because we're everybody, I mean, as a white person, you know, I enter, not that often, but sometimes I enter, you know, conversations and interactions where people want to have a very pat answer, like, uh, it's not my problem, or you know, we got to support the police, or 
you know, whatever it might be. And uh, I have to be, in my own way, in that own cir- circumstance, I have to be able to not be afraid of the ignorance, not be afraid of the fixed views, not be judgmental, right? I have to be able to get close, and I have to model non-fear, and I have to model clarity. That's what we do with our loved ones, our friends, and our, all of our communities. That's what's going to really cause healing, is not to react with, to hate with hate, or greed with greed, or delusion with delusion, but to add something new to the mix. Stability, clarity, compassion, and a response that's really about coming out of those places and not feeding, you know, basically feeding the problem. And this is why things get so deep, like when you think about the Palestinians and the Israelis, like why it's just getting deeper and deeper, the problem, because they keep triggering each other. I mean, I'm not saying there's somebody's right or somebody's wrong. I'm just saying that when you step back and look at it, the reason it gets worse and worse is that anger begets anger, fear begets fear. Right? It just keeps growing. Now, is that, is that what's going to happen with race in America? Because it's certainly possible that we keep digging this hole deeper. And the thing is, going forward in a healing way is not going to be easy. It's going to really hurt to be honest, to learn how to be more honest about it. But it's in the direction of liberation. And it's going to require people who are unafraid and people who have enough wisdom about their own greed, anger, and delusion so that when they're in their own situations, their own communities, they're not feeding greed, anger, and delusion. They know how to be intimate with it without feeding it. Otherwise, we're going to have big problems. So I think it's a good place to end. We're a little bit after nine. Thanks for bringing that up. And let's just take a couple breaths together. Appreciate the silence. And for each of us to just take a few moments to contemplate our responsibility because we do care about our own life and because we care about other sensitive beings, all sensitive beings. Really reflecting on our our responsibility not to add to hate, to delusion, to greed, knowing how much suffering it entails. So may we all be part of the causes and conditions leading to real freedom from these afflictive states. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.